I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 17 this morning. I just want to um, say that it's good to be back in the saddle uh, this morning with you guys. I realize I haven't preached in three weeks and I'm very thankful that um, Tim and Mitch and uh, Justin, there we go, this is sleepless nights, Um, (laughs) Justin came and uh, preached for us the last three Sundays. I had planned for the baby to come some point in those three Sundays, and she was already defying me from the womb. But I'm glad to be here with you guys. And um, You probably have a person in your life, a friend, a family member, a co-worker, that you just think would never come to faith in Jesus. Their hardness of heart, their defiance, their love for pleasure and sin, it's caused you to just kind of lose hope and lose faith that God could ever save this family member, this child, this aunt, this uncle, this parent, this best friend. This passage this morning is a reminder to us that the people we think most unlikely to trust in Jesus are probably the most likely people for Jesus to save. Because that's what he's about. And so let me read for us this passage here in Mark 2, and then I will pray. So Mark 2, verses 13 to 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, by your word and by your Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. Cause us to behold these words and to understand them in such a way that our devotion and our delight and our worship of Jesus would be all the more greater than when we first entered this room. Save and accomplish your purposes here for the glory of Christ's name and for the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've entered a section in Mark where the opposition begins to build in regards to Jesus. Basically, from chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 6, there's this opposition that's building towards Jesus and the things that he is doing and the things that he is teaching. Last week, or not last week, several weeks ago, we looked at the healing of the paralytic 
where Jesus forgives him of his sins. And while he's doing that, there are these religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees who begin questioning Jesus in their hearts. They begin questioning him because they know that the only one who has the authority to forgive a person their sins is God. And here is Jesus pronouncing forgiveness on this man. And so they think he is committing blasphemy. But the next several encounters, they're no longer questioning in their hearts. They begin to question him verbally and publicly. Not just the Pharisees. But the focus is specifically on the the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, before these other encounters take place, Jesus has what I would call a divine encounter with a man named Levi, which we've just read about, who was a tax collector. And this small little story of Levi sets us up for the encounter with the scribes when they see Jesus having a meal with Levi and his friends. And so the first thing I want us to see in this passage is that here in verses 13 and 14, we have an unlikely convert, an unlikely convert. Jesus goes again beside the sea and he continues to teach the crowds that are coming to him. And while he did this, he passed by this man named Levi who was sitting at a tax booth. And with two words from Jesus, follow me, this man got up and followed him. This is a moment of divine grace intervening in this man's life. And it comes in the words, follow me. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't pursuing Jesus. Jesus pursued him. And with two words, Jesus forever changed the course of this man's life. This tax collector would not only become a follower of Jesus, saved by God's grace, but he would also become one of the apostles of Christ. That is Matthew. Now, the only way to really grasp how significant this moment was is to understand a little bit about tax collectors in Jerusalem. Tax collectors were viewed, tax collectors were viewed as the worst of sinners amongst the Jews because they were traitors to their own people. These individuals, these Jewish individuals, would be, would be hired by Rome who was their oppressor, and they would then tax their own fellow Israelites. And in so doing, they would often keep a large sum for themselves. You see, tax collectors were willing to betray their own people in order to get rich, and because of that, they were seen as the scum of the world in Jerusalem. Think of Zacchaeus. You see, there's not many things worse than a traitor. Especially when you betray your own people just to get a buck. You wouldn't find a single religious leader in Israel who would intentionally call a tax collector to be his disciple. But that's what Jesus does. Not just one of his disciples who will one day become one of his apostles. He calls to himself the most unlikely of candidates. 
In the earlier chapters, we saw that he called fishermen to himself. Not religious people, but simply fishermen. Not not in a class of theological study, but fishermen. And now he calls a traitor to be one of his disciples. He turns traitors into followers. He turns lovers of money into lovers of God. Sinners into saints. For the Jews... Levi would have been the last person they would have thought Jesus would call to follow him and bring him into his inner circle. He was, by definition, an unlikely convert. But from God's perspective, he was a likely convert. For it's this very kind of person for why Jesus came into the world. As we will see, he came for sinners. The history of the church is marked by individuals who we would naturally consider to be unlikely converts. We think of probably one of the most famous, that of John Newton, who was a slave trader. He, he went to Africa and took African men and women and children made in the image of God, and he sold them, and he, he killed and was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of slaves, men, women, and children. Yet into his darkness, into the unlikeliness of him ever coming to faith, divine grace intervened. And it was this divine grace that John Newton wrote about when he said these words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a tax collector per se, but you're an unlikely candidate to be saved. Jesus can call you and save you just as he did Levi. For Levi, Jesus saved him from his greed and treachery. But he can also save you from your anger, your pride, your sexual deviance, your selfishness, your gossip, your drunkenness, your bitterness, your jealousy, your deception, your materialism, your idolatry, your loving of self. But the question is, when you hear the words, follow me, will you get up like Levi did and follow him? leaving your sin behind you and embracing Jesus as your new master. Or maybe Christian, you have a friend or a family member that is the worst of sinners and you often think there's no way God will save him. It's it's more likely that that a horse will respond in repentance and faith than Uncle Joe. But remember this, what's often unlikely to us is likely to God. Or what often seems impossible to us is possible to God. See, I think as Christians, we're prone to think that it's, it's the somewhat morally upright who will be most drawn to Jesus. But we're often mistaken, as we will see in this passage. And I want to say to you this morning, don't lose hope. Don't stop praying for that Levi in your family, for that friend, because at some point they may hear the words, follow me, and surprisingly to you, though not to God, they may just get up and follow him. 
And so we see here an unlikely convert. Secondly, we see in this passage an ignorant, self-righteous spirit displayed by the scribes of the Pharisees. Look at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So here's the scene. Levi has invited him over for a meal. He and his disciples were having a meal with these other tax collectors and sinners who were also followers of Jesus. And so Jesus is actually, I think, having a good time with this group of sinners. Most likely, there would have been wine flowing. They would have enjoyed a meal together. I, I picture this group enjoying wine and, and a meal, and there's, and there's laughter, and they're also hanging on every word that Jesus is telling them. It's, it's probably this passage and others that caused some people to accuse Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. Remember in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist and himself. He's speaking to the crowds and he says this, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, that is Christ, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was a party animal. You see, though Jesus was never a drunkard nor a glutton, Rumors were spread that he was because of situations like this. He sat down and had a meal with wine and food with sinners. So this is the context. Jesus is having a meal with sinners and tax collectors. And the scribes of the Pharisees somehow are able to observe what he's doing. And so they ask his disciples in verse 16... And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Their question could be understood as seeking genuine understanding. Why does he do this? But I don't think that's what's going on. The tone of the text doesn't allow for that. Also in Luke's recording of this story, in Luke 5, 27-32, we're told these religious leaders grumbled at the disciples about this. You see, they were appalled at what Jesus was doing, basking in the presence of sinners. These religious leaders were all about religious duty and, and remaining clean and, and having a good reputation amongst the people. To eat with sinners would, would be an act of uncleanliness. They would never engage in such behavior as Jesus has done here. You see, this question that they place before the disciples isn't a genuine inquiry, but a declaration of judgment masked in a question. This is a moment of self-righteous judgment. But remember, I said that in this passage we see not just self-righteousness, but an ignorant self-righteousness. Because we're going to see is that all self-righteousness is ultimately rooted in ignorance. 
The religious leaders in this passage did get something right, but they also got something wrong in this moment. They were knowledgeable about something, but also completely ignorant about something else. They were right to conclude that the people Jesus was eating with were sinners, because they were. They were wrong, however, to think that they themselves were not. They were ignorant of the state of their own souls. They had no knowledge because they knew not themselves. They thought themselves to be righteous and upright. They weren't like those filthy sinners. They spent so much time observing the traditions they had established that they never stopped to examine their own souls before a holy God. They believed they were accepted by God because they weren't like those sinners tainted by the things of this world. John Calvin, in the beginning of his Institutes, in referring to knowledge, he says this, Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. See, without knowledge of self, we'll never have a knowledge of God. This is why the Pharisees had no knowledge of their need for Jesus. They thought themselves to be superior than others. They thought themselves to have no need for mercy and grace. Friend, if if you think yourself to be morally upright, morally superior than others, you are ignorant of yourself. You might say, I've never murdered anyone. I I don't do drugs. I've been faithful to my spouse. I I care for people. Of course I'm I'm morally upright. And and yeah, I am, of course, morally superior than others. I'm no Hitler. Except in all of that thinking... You've committed the greatest sin, the greater sin, pride and self-righteousness. You see, just as the prostitute needs to be saved from her prostitution, so you need to be delivered from your self-righteousness. I remember one time when I was in high school and uh, I was evangelizing at one of the malls in Toronto. I can't remember which one. And there was this booth that was set up and it was these two individuals, and they were, they were new age people. Um, and so I went up and began a discussion with them. And, and, you know, they actually started talking about Jesus because they see Jesus as this very religious guru, and he's someone to follow. He's, he's someone to, to meditate on and, 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 and imitate in their lives. And, and so we started talking, and I started telling them, of course, that Jesus is more than a religious guru. He's the one and only way to God. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And this one man who was there, we were having a discussion, and I began to take him through the law, the Ten Commandments. And I began to simply ask him simple questions. Have you ever lied before? And he said, yes, I have. And well, what does that make you? And he's like, well, I guess that makes me a liar. And I said, yes, it does. He said, have you ever stolen anything? And he's like, yeah, but not a lot. And like, it doesn't matter how much you steal. It's whether or not you've stolen. And he admitted that he had stolen and he admitted that he was a thief. And I said, have you ever lusted after a woman or someone of the same sex before who's not your spouse? And, and he admitted to that as well. And, 
And I said, well, Jesus said that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery in his heart. Jesus ups the ante from the Old Testament. Jesus actually gets more serious about holiness than the Old Testament does. Because he's not just concerned about your outward conduct, but your inner soul. And so I was having this conversation with him, and, and things all of a sudden turned, and he said, well, I used to be a, a drug addict and a drunkard, and, and, and I, I began all doing this new age stuff, and, and I've, I've worked myself to the bone to get over my alcohol and to get over my drugs, and I'm a way better person than I ever was before. You're telling me that I need a savior, and yet I was able to change myself. And I said to him, I praise God that you were able to overcome your drugs and your alcohol. But you need to understand your drugs and your alcohol are not the main problem. They're the symptom of the main problem. And now your main problem is manifesting in something else, self-righteousness. You think you don't need God's forgiveness because you've overcome drugs in your own strength. You need to repent, not of drugs and alcohol necessarily, but now you think you're superior because you've overcome that. You see, these religious leaders, they were judging these people with Jesus because they believed themselves to be morally superior to them. They were ignorant of the state of their own soul. And because of this, they believed themselves to not be in need of forgiveness and grace. But friends, the scriptures make clear that we are all on the same playing field. Yes, on that soccer field, some of us are more talented and more skilled than others. But on that field, we are all the same. We all are tainted by sin. The scriptures tell us in Romans 3, the Apostle Paul writes, and he's, he's speaking here of the, 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 the difference between the Jew and the Gentile. And he says, what then? Are, are we Jews any better off because we have the law? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and then he quotes from Psalm 14, 1-3, and Psalm 53, 1-3, and he says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one. Not some, no one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Or Romans 3, 23 to 24, for all, all have sinned, all means all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, friends, to believe that you're not in need of God's forgiveness is to bar yourself from walking in the fullness of life that God has intended for you. Self-righteousness, hear this, self-righteousness reigns supreme in hell. Mercy and grace reign supreme in heaven. Hell is full of of the self-professed righteous. Heaven is full of sinners touched with the kiss of grace. 
These religious leaders spent so much time judging and disdaining others, they never looked in the mirror to see their own filth and vileness and their own need for God's forgiveness. And listen, self-righteousness is not just a religious problem. It's rampant not just in the church, but also in our culture. All you have to do is get on the internet today and, and see people's judgment of others through social media like Facebook and and Twitter and Instagram. And if you don't know what those things are, you're blessed. But those are basically platforms for people to engage on. And these platforms, really, they have become the new courtrooms where the mob is the jury and they pronounce their judgments on people before evidence ever comes in. But they don't just judge them. They shame them simply for having a different belief over matters of politics or sexual ethics. But here's what I want to say to us as a church family. There's nothing more damaging to the gospel than self-professing Christians who walk in self-righteousness. The reputation of the church, I believe, has been far more damaged by a spirit of self-righteousness than any kind of moral failure on the part of its leaders. More individuals have been damaged by self-righteous Christians than any kind of moral failure on the part of leaders or persons within the church. I'm saying this because as a church, I'm praying that the spirit of self-righteousness would be utterly killed in our hearts. That we would constantly, constantly remember that each of us are utterly dependent upon God's mercy and grace, no matter our progress in holiness and righteousness. There's never a day where you don't need to drink from the fountain of God's grace. There's never a moment where you and I are not utterly dependent upon God's mercy. This is is one of the reasons why we will often have a corporate confession within our services like we did earlier this morning. Because every week, we need to remind ourselves and one another that we are sinners saved by the sheer mercy and kindness of God. And that our only confidence before God rests not in ourselves, but in Christ alone, the one whose blood was shed for me and for you to turn us sinners into saints by his glorious grace. And so we see here in this passage an unlikely convert and an ignorant, self-righteous spirit. The third thing that I want us to see is this. We see a savior for sinners. Is my mic off? I'll just bring this closer. (laughs) The third thing I want us to see is we see a savior for sinners. The Pharisees ask their questions to Jesus' disciples, but Jesus overhears. And he immediately responds to them in verse 17. Look at how he responds. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In his response, he compares his purpose to that of a physician. The purpose of a physician, we know, isn't to see healthy people. His task is to care for and help the sick become healthy. And this is why, this is the reason why Jesus sits and eats with sinners and tax collectors. He is the great spiritual physician who has come to make the sick well. Or the the parallel statement to that is, he is the Savior who has come to make sinners righteous. That's the parallel in his argumentation. Look Look at verse 17 again. Wellness is equivalent to righteousness. Sickness is equivalent to sinners. Physician is equivalent to Savior. That's the imagery that Jesus is using, the comparison. Which means, if you believe yourself to be well you will have no need for a physician. If you believe yourself to be righteous, you will see no need for a Savior. Jesus will not be appealing to you at all. You will look at Him with indifference or even disdain. But if you know yourself to be sick... That is to be a sinner. Jesus will become the great treasure and delight of your life because he is the great Savior who has come to call sinners to himself and to make them righteous. He is the man for sinners. He has come to rescue the vile and the unclean. He has come to free those enslaved to their sins in order that they might become slaves to righteousness. The Apostle Paul declared in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy. It's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You see, friends, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Jesus describes them in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, where he tells this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And this is what he says. He also told his parable, this parable to some who trusted in, them, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
And the question for us this morning is this, which man describes you? This is why I titled my sermon, The Sinner Shall Be Saved and the Righteous Shall Not. Christ came to save sinners. And if you believe yourself not to be one, then you won't be saved. But if you humble yourself and acknowledge the fact that you, like everyone else in this room, have sinned against a holy, good, gracious, kind God, if you acknowledge that and realize that you are guilty before the King of Kings, and you cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. I can promise you, the God of creation, the God of salvation, will respond in mercy and grace. If you seek Him, you will find Him. If you get up out of the chair, just when He calls you, follow me, you will become His disciple. John Newton, which I've already made mention of, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, later in his life as he began to decline in health, he became blind, and he also began to lose some of his memory. But he wrote these words, some of the most beautiful words ever to be written, and he said this, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. I hope this will be the declaration of our hearts as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, the Savior of the world. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, we would only ever lean on Jesus' righteousness and not our own. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, if there's anyone here this morning, even the children, that God, by your spirit, they would realize they need a savior. They need Jesus. And so save them, Lord. Accomplish your purposes. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.